You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Hi, and thank you, Carl, for your intro. Uh, Welcome to Episode 6 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is out saving the world and a server crash in Cyberland. Uh, He had an emergency he had to tend to, so... He will not be joining us uh, for this episode, but he'll be back for the next episode. So today, uh, we're coming to you again from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, www.thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at @thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, our guest is Christopher Kretz. Chris is an academic librarian and a local history podcaster. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Wow, there's an echo in here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk to Chris uh, today about life in academia from the library side and uh, his long-running podcast called The Long Island History Project and the technology behind the podcast. But first, we wanted to talk to Chris a little bit about himself. Uh, and life on the academic side uh, over at um, Dowling College. So tell us a little bit about uh, where you went to library school. Uh, probably different than, than most people we, we run into in, in our day jobs. I went to Queens College. We're, we're a minority out here on Long Island. But well, it's usually a 50-50 split. Really? I found I, it to be I, a little lower. But well, maybe uh, it's 60-40. Okay. Because the other school is CW Post. Right, right. Most yeah. people, Palmer grads. But, yeah, so Queens uh, graduated 2001, um, and that's funny. I graduated in two thousand one, also. Yeah, from yeah. From, from post. post. Okay. Yeah. Um, I did not know where I was going after that. So um, by that time, I, I'd been working in the city, but I was living in in Sayville by that time. So um, it, it was sort of up for grabs which way I would go. I was working part time in a public library. I was at that point working part time at Dowling. So you know, both both roads, academic or public. I was open to which it's whichever one would open up first. So, so you didn't um, intend on did you didn't when you were in school, because um, I know when I was there, public library librarianship wasn't the thing I was going for. I was going in special libraries for law library. You, you knew that from okay from yeah, the get go from the get go because I no, was I was yeah. working in the court system, so that was the next natural progression for right. me. So, for you, was it? Did you have a, a feeling that that's what you wanted to do in academic? I, I didn't, but what I found myself as I was in the classes, um, just just watching the the professors, I, I I guess without realizing it, I was I was sort of glomming onto the academic life, I guess. So seeing you know the the way they were teaching and and their work habits and things like that, and and getting into the research end of it, even though I I wound up working a little bit part time in public. Um, I, I guess I I started seeing academic as as sort of where I was gravitating towards but but i didn't i took a few archives courses so that was another option Mm -hmm. uh that was before they had their certificate program so right uh, i didn't jump whole hog into that so but again it it came down to like many of us we start with many many part-time jobs that's true (laughs) and uh, um, south huntington was a great place to work for a while and then dowling just had an opening for a sabbatical leave replacement uh so right place right time that turned into another sabbatical leave replacement and that led to an open position, and then, you know, 12 years later, um, sadly, <laughs> the, the Dowling story is seems to be winding down, but it was a great, you know, 12 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it is a sad story. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> um, but so tell us what, you know, what a day in the life of an academic librarian is. I mean, I can cheat a little bit by saying I worked at Dowling part-time, so I had a, fl- I had a taste of, mm-hmm. of what it was like. And I, it was actually very nice. Dealing with students was wonderful. But tell us a little bit about what the day-to-day is, what you yeah, know, the yeah. duties and things are. And, um, it, you know, it, it varied. It, it's interesting. It, it was very cyclical. And I almost think of it as agricultural because you have your, you know, beginning of the semester and in the fall, you're sort of planting the crops. So you've got the new <laughs> students coming in, people looking for their textbooks. And so, you know, there's a rhythm to the um, to the year. Right. And then you have the midterms and then finals, you know, there's a rush. And then you have the breaks where it kind of dies down. And summer is when you sort of do your big, you know, projects, your weeding and things like that. So you sort of an ebb and flow to the to the how busy it is. But but beyond that, um, you know, you, you're putting out fires. That's always, you know, I, my day job was um, digital resources management, so the databases. So there's always a problem. You know, a database is down or somebody's password is not working. So, you, you know, there's always those kind of quick things you have to fix from day to day, putting out fires. Um, reference desk work, it's, it's not as frenzied as the public. When I was doing both, it was always interesting you know, the public shift would go a lot quicker because you had more questions and that would sort of make the time fly. Sure. Um, academic, you tend to get the same questions after you do a year or two, you know, the same classes are running, so you're getting the same type of research. Right. Um, but the other big piece of, of college life, academic life, we, at Dowling we were full-time faculty, the librarians. Um, so we were participating in committees, so you're, there's a whole other level of work that you're doing you know, uh, curriculum committee, helping the school decide on curriculum issues, faculty personnel committee. So it, it, I used to compare it, and this is this will date me, I used to compare public and um, academic as a difference between being on MASH and L.A. Law, which <laughs> won't mean much to people nowadays. But, you know, so academic was a much more structured environment, a lot more meetings, um, where public, to my mind, was more dealing one-on-one with people in quicker sort of right. triage situations. Exactly, sometimes. triage. Yeah. Triage, get them out, you know, yeah. or going to a butcher versus going to a deli counter. Okay, that works. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, and, you know, it really is interesting when you're, when you're a full-time academic librarian, you do have more interaction with not just administration um, outside of your, your um, you know, the library or your mm-hmm. department, but the interaction with professors. Yeah, and, and that's a skill I think you have to develop, being able to go into someone else's turf. And, you know, not that there were battles, but in any college, every department is sort of has their own set of criteria. So if you're coming in as a librarian to the arts and, you, you know, arts and humanities meeting, and they've, they've got, you know, problems of their own, and you're trying to convince them to use a database or, you know, hey, why don't we come in and teach some of your, you know, students how to do this or that, you, you sort of have to be able to, you know, you become a creature of meetings. You, you find out, you know, if you can stand up and, and give a spiel or convince people or, or gain consensus around something. You have to, you know, if, if you don't like meetings, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, probably academic is not, is not going to be the most fun for you. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember when I was there, you know, saying, oh, we have to go when, because uh, one thing that even the part-timers used to do there was to go to a class and give the library lecture or the library right. spiel. We call it the one shot. Usually, yeah, yeah, one exactly. chat, one, one forty-five minute section to tell them everything they can do. How to <laughs> at use the EBSCO, How to use right, the products right. and mm-hmm. what, you know what is where and that other stuff. I actually found that kind of challenging because every time you went into a class, 
it was something different. And now Dowling was primarily, their main focus was education, teaching teacher, people to become Th- teachers. That was one of the main programs, and there was an MBA uh, yes. on the weekends mostly. And then, um, but then you got a mix, so you'd have a, mu- a music student every once in a while. And, and I was actually um, faculty research librarian, so I would help the faculty with some of their research interests, and that sort of opens up a whole new avenue because then you're looking at, you know, almost international trying to find them, you know, uh, oral histories or, or sources that are so unique to their specific problem that, you know, it, it makes it interesting. So you, you got a range of questions to tackle. When you were there, did you have to help the doctoral students, the education doctoral students? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was it, I always found that really fascinating to hear these people who are going for their doctorate and they get such tunnel vision working on their thesis that they don't know to change one word in a keyword search, and it yields so many different results. Well, and it's interesting, because then it, it goes to, like, when when do people learn how to do research? And some people going back for doctorates are older, so they might have not been in school, you know, with the kind of technology we have now. But, True. But even people coming up, my wife's a high school librarian, and, and we, we'll get to talking about, you know, is, is someone teaching them, you know, how to do a keyword search, how to break down it into subjects and what headings to use or how to change it and find things. But anyway, so the doctoral program, they, they were they were our bread and butter on certain times, and, and they were always sort of the high-end questions, and that, that's always great because then you can get your, your teeth into that, trying to find, you know, or help them change it because sometimes they're locked into something that doesn't exist or it's not out there or right. it, it's out of date. So, Yeah, I always found that. Uh, helping the undergraduates is very, for me, very satisfying. But helping the doctoral students and watching what I always use as an example, I always say, watch the light bulb go off over their heads, mm-hmm. and then they take that one nugget you give them, and then they expand on it, and then they come back to you a month later. You know what I found? I was able to write a whole chapter. So, th- you know, for me, that was incredibly rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, they're the type of, you know, they're, a big reason why we're there, that, that type of research is always, uh, you know, you, you, some of our best, I used to track all the usage in the databases and the education databases were, you know, miles ahead in usage. So it was always good to see. And you learn them, you know, like the back of your hand, how to do an Eric search. Or right. All the yeah. Advanced keyword, you know, yep. the advanced keyword, make sure it, it was, you know, peer, re- peer reviewed and mm-hmm. it wasn't just an abstract, all those little nuances of the right, advanced right. search. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, how many jobs? I think we talked about this a little bit. Yeah, How so many jobs have you had before? Dowling? Not not much. So again, I, I came out of library school and had a part time job at the old South Huntington Library. Um, at, at the same time, I was doing Dowling, and so I, beyond that, I, I kind of concentrated on the academics. So um, haven't really been much other places than Dowling. Although I, I've met a lot of people, a lot of great librarians at other places on the island. So, so before you were saying that. Um, your title technically was a digital resources librarian. Yep. So did you go back to the days of the CD-ROM towers? I was just at the end of that, yeah. And we had a few products where we'd, you'd get a CD every every month, and we, we would pass them off to the IT department. They would try to make it work. Uh, but eventually, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> most of it um, changed to, to online. Um and we were just near the end of dialogue, so we were just still paying. We had a, a few, we had a, a little bit of a budget to pay. You know, you're, you're paying by time for searching on dialogue, and it was always oh god, yeah, I remember now. that, yeah. yeah. So, um, and then it shifted. So, yeah, um, 
and then you know the other things I was involved in was licensing and, and making sure the the proxy worked and off campus right. access things like that. Right, so and you have how many user agreements per CD-ROM? Remember those? Yeah, five logins at one time. Right, right. Ten logins, yeah. depending on. And how it, it's funny how that. I don't know if I would say loosened up, but it, it didn't seem to matter as much as time went on. It was sort of a, a more of a blanket license that covered a lot of things. So it, you know, sort of, I think the the vendors learned, and I think the libraries learned, like how people actually used them and and what you know costs could be passed on and not. Well, let me ask you this now: How did you actually make that jump um, from? Use it, doing what you did every day to developing a podcast. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the podcast later. Right, just, right. Just in general, what, you know, how that... Well, I mean, digital resources, you, you, you keep abreast of technology. So, you, you know, you're looking for what's new and what's what's happening. And um, 2005, I, I remember my... I used to talk about this more, but for Father's Day, I got an, um, a shuffle. Or, oh, yeah. And, so, and this was just, I think, that June... Uh, iTunes added podcasts to their directory, and for some reason, you know, I was never one. I I grew up with um, listening to radio at home, so maybe in the back of my head, this was always there. But I, I never wanted to be like a, a a radio personality. But as soon as I started hearing podcasts, I, I could see the usefulness of them and and how they could be such a niche. You know, find a show on a certain thing that would never be on the air, but there's mm -hmm. one person out there that's sharing their expertise or knowledge on that. So. Um, I kind of brought that back, that idea back to the library, and and you know it was sort of like a, a library version of NPR. So mm -hmm. by by that fall of 2005, I put together with the help of some of the other librarians a prototype show that was talking about things that were new at the library, but also interviewing a lot of faculty about the research they were doing, um, and then a, a segment or two on on local history. So that was sort of a seed in the beginning of this bigger show about the library. There was always a section of it where we'd talk to the archivist or find a story about Oakdale history or about the history of the school, and we'd, we'd work that into it. That's, that's, I just, and it's funny how when you talk to different people, um, not necessarily here on the, our podcast, but mm -hmm. in general in the podcast world, how it started. And it usually does start as a seed. Mm -hmm. well, you know, I don't see that they are not, there aren't any podcasts about this or or on this topic, and it kind of grows. Uh, and it starts little, and then it, it starts to spread. And then it becomes something that become. it's just fun to do. Yep. And then, you know, the, you had to figure out how to do the audio recording and the editing and, and teach yourself, you know, sound engineering and things like that. Right. So, and I, I don't claim to be a, any great wizard at it, but I've learned to make it work. And, and, and that's all that matters, exactly, really. Yeah. yeah, sure. So tell me a little bit about... Um, the kinds of things that you that you we talked about this again a few questions ago about what you had taught. Did you actually teach a class instead of like one of those one-off how to use the library? Well, yeah, this goes I guess back to the library land. But so we in in Dowling we would have one-shot classes. So like a education class would come and and say give us a section on a session on how to use a database or how to research a topic. Um, that was the one-off. We also had a one-credit class uh, on, it was called Information Instruction, and then we changed it to uh, Introduction to Academic Research, and that was a nine-week class. It was required for education majors, so th that was a good um, entry point, you know, sort of a captured, captive audience. They, they needed it if they were to go on to write a lot of research papers in education. So 
that was a nine-week class teaching them how to use database, not just use databases, but how to formulate a thesis, you know, how to, how to break it into subject areas and how to, you know, look for different types of sources and what makes a good source and evaluating sources, all that. Right. The, the one thing that I was excited about in this, we ran out of time, but towards the end, last two semesters, we were developing the one credit into a three-credit course. Wow, and we were bringing into digital literacy with it, and you know, and that opened up everything. You could, we could have been making podcasts with the class, you know, teaching them how to use, set up LinkedIn accounts, how to use Twitter for research, and to contact people. So, sure. yeah, there's still a lot of potential. A lot of places are doing three credit courses um, with information literacy and and digital literacy. And well, it, like make, it makes kind of sense because if you think about it in terms of it's hard to bring a book, an actual hard, you know hard copy book into some kind of digital literacy unless you're scanning it in and then using it mm -hmm. or if it's been digitized. But if you're dealing with a medium that started in a digital world and developed, it makes some sense to add it, make it more of a three-credit class because that's where everything seems to be going anyway. And, and you know, just imagine, because we in, even in the one, one credit class, we would spend, or I would spend a week on... Um, journalism and, you know, where do you get your news from? And people would usually say my phone. <laughs> so, so you sort of have to back up and teach them about, um, you know, editors and journalists and like where does knowledge come from and how do you trust a source and things like that. So sure. they, um, like we said, where do they learn these things? One, one, op one opportunity is in a college course, but then also, you know, all along K to 12, you got to be working, working these things in bit by bit. And it seems as though the schools are kind of doing that now anyway. I think so, yeah. 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 I mean, and we both have kids that are school age, yeah. so we kind of see it. Uh, my my um, fourth and fifth graders are using Chromebooks, and so, yeah, they're, they're oh, yeah. definitely they're on their way. I mean, and just the, I, was, I was talking to my dad the other day, and he's an old schooler, you know, mm -hmm. and he said, well, where's, what kind, how many textbooks do the kids have to return at the end of the school year? I said, well, what, I think, my high schooler had one, and my elementary schooler had none. Hmm. It's all digital. It's all you know, blackboard kind of things, um, or because what was it? it was called blackboard at Dowling, right? Yeah, the, the online the, the uh, online kind of listserv. Yep. The, uh, well, the the, um, the course management system that right. we were using, yeah, blackboard is one one of the biggest ones. But it's the same kind of system that they had with. Um, I forget the name of the publisher. It's one of those Common Core publishers or something. But, you know, they would log in with the username and password, and then, boom, there's their homework assignment. Right. And, and quizzes are up there. And everything is up there. Mm -hmm. So, and, and now with parent portals and all that other thing, you can right. see there's no more going in the last day to get your report card. Right, because you, you get it online. On, yeah, yeah, it's posted yeah. online now. So, you know, as far as digital literacy goes, it really, it's a retraining for everybody, not just the kids. Well, and, and that's the other thing with faculty, you know, have to come to that table too, so th that that's a process. But kicking and screaming. Well, and then you know, I think some of them see the potential, and then they want to do more. And you know, I taught a few how to record audio for their for their Blackboard courses too. And you know, now you can create a whole multimedia productions for your for your classes. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I probably mentioned it in a previous podcast, but my daughter, who's in high school now, when she was in I think sixth grade, she had to do a report on Christopher Columbus. Now I imagine when you and I were little, you know, laboring over an encyclopedia and writing stuff down and trying really hard not to copy it word for word. Mm -hmm. She got to do a video with stop motion photography and yeah. all this stuff, all done with her, her, at the time it was her iPod, 
and she submitted that. It was a 15 minute, vi- no, a 10 minute video with a trailer that she made in, in uh, iMovie. And I just said to myself, kid, you're so lucky. Well, and, and there are certain kids, you know, where maybe writing is not that easy for them, but they can get up and talk and record themselves. So giving them different ways to present what they've learned instead of just a research paper, that's yeah. also good. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you said before you were from Queens, so you originally grew up in Queens. Yes, yes, came from Bayside, Queens. And then, um, and I, I think this is a question you will get to later, but the way I got into library school is my, my then-girlfriend went back to library school first to become a school media specialist and i would have to sometimes spend a sunday <laughs> at queen's college waiting <laughs> waiting for her uh in the basement in the periodical section. Always. yeah but you know then i was looking around and again you sort of absorb these things and it, you said hey, this is pretty interesting and just the range of for some reason the range of periodicals that were out there you know the, the strange disciplines and everything so i put a seed in, again a seed in my head and then after she graduated um I went back for my degree, a, a different career. I think you've talked about this, uh, the second career syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so exactly. library was my second career. Um, and so, you know, by just by waiting for her to finish her classes kind of put me on that path, too. Mm-hmm. What was your first career, just out of curiosity? Uh, it, it was similar. I, I, well, it was stock photography. So for 10 years, I worked in a photo library in the city. Um, and it would be like advertising. Actually, some textbooks, which I've probably seen later, they would call and say, we need a picture of, you know, two students looking at a test tube and then we would have piles and piles of 35 millimeter slides and you would pick out 10 send them to hardcore brace and you know they'd buy one or two of them and you know that's another industry that kind of the digital technology i was just going to say that it, it, it became kind of, google photos yeah you know corbis and then bought out consolidation and now it's all you can do it online so you know my job probably doesn't exist anymore where you're pulling things out of files and looking at slides on light boxes but uh so it was sort of a library that's that's really with. that's really cool, and yeah. you know it's funny, um, thinking about when we were kids, and people would say to you because I'm experiencing this now with my my tenth now tenth grader, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Well, the, what we're doing now didn't exist when we were 15 years old, so how you know how do you even say so? What do you want to be when you grow up? Because it may not have been invented yet, right? And there right. may be an industry that's there now that we're trying to push our kid into that may not be there in 10 years. Yeah. So it gets back to this, you know, what skills do you teach and what literacies? And it's just, you know, they say teach them, learn how to learn and then learn how to pick up, you know, like a new technology. Just make sure you know how you can jump right in and, and master it. And then it. learn how to troubleshoot because yeah, that's, that's a huge skill that yeah. not a lot of kids have nowadays. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how your interest in local history began. That's interesting. And I've thought... It came slowly, so it's another, I don't know, an emerging uh, idea. But if I were to go back now, I'd, I would probably have been a history major. I, I was an English major, undergrad. Um, I, I guess it, it part, part and parcel of just liking to research and, you know, um, coming to Dowling, we had a great, and we, we do have a great archive and special collections. And when I started, um, Sue Terry was the archivist, and she would always let me go in and poke around because I wanted to learn the history of the college. And that led to the history of the area, and, and, and Dowling and Oakdale has this very deep stratified history going back to, you know, everyone knows the Vanderbilt Mansion was there, but even before them, there were, you know, the Nickel family and, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of different things, and then after that, it became, you know, uh, during Prohibition, it was run as a hotel, and there were 
sort of speakeasies in the area and a lot of uh, rum runners. And then after right, because of the access to Connecticut River. Yeah, well, people coming in offshore. And then um, it was a, um, a cult took it over in the late 30s. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, for two years. So it was called Peace Haven, very bizarre chapter. Um, and then even after that, it was a dairy and a research lab and a college. So, Wasn't the Bayard Cutting Arboretum also, uh, the Bayard Cutting property was also a, 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 um, a dairy farm, wasn't it? it they, they had a dairy farm, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, even before the, the Cuttings owned it, it was owned by the Laurel Lords, and he had a, a, a huge racetrack. He, he, raised, he raised thoroughbreds. Um, oh, wow. Late 1800s. That's so really neat, too. Sort of forgotten history there. So so all that, and again, th- this was fodder for the podcast. So, you know, every episode or two, we would pull a story out of the archives and either interview somebody or, we, we you know, we would do dramatic readings of old newspaper clips telling the story. <laughs> so, you know, um, so there was always something to talk about with, with the history. And that. So, th- you know, and that... It, we did, th- or I did that one for about, I have it written down, some, up until about 2012. And then um, I guess just got tired of it. So I took about a two-year break from podcasting. But I always knew those local history segments did very well because you, you got more downloads, more response. Um, and I liked doing them. So th- there was an opportunity to restart a podcast just on local history. And that's, that's what Long Island History Project was. And that's how it kind of developed, right? Yep. That's really neat. So the special collection, um, the special collection at Dowling must be amazing. It is, and and Diane Holiday is, is our archivist, special collections librarian, um, and she really developed that. She has a special knack for the Gilded Age and and decorative arts and things like that. So she did a lot to process collections, get finding aids up, and things like that. So we became uh, through her efforts a destination for Vanderbilt scholars, and um, we had the. Uh, um, couple societies come out just to tour she did a lot of tours and things like that so mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely a jewel and you know if, if we talk more about dowling the, the question of what becomes of that is is an issue but that's we'll, scary, we'll find yeah. a good home for that yeah yeah uh, so in regards to your podcast you said it started in 2005 so yeah so the original podcast i called omnibus which is i guess a little pretentious but it's sort of it was a mishmash of whoever i could get on the show and we would do you know, some opening scenes, hey, we have a new book drop in the library. We right. record people dropping books. That's <laughs> <laughs> the sound of it. You had a, a Foley man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then it was actually amazing. I got to meet a lot of people I hadn't known yet at that point, but talking to librarian, uh, other faculty members about their research. So we had a biologist who was studying wasps in the Pine Barrens. Uh, we had a drama professor who was researching 19th century hippodramas. Literally, they would have these machines with horses on the stages with uh, treadmills, special effects with really? an actual horse running. Yeah, um, And then, you know, economists and philosophers and things. So ev- everyone had their own segment, and they would talk about what they were interested in. And, you know, that, that, was, that was fun for the eight or so years we were doing it. Um, good promotion for the school. Alumni were on it. We did a lot of alumni interviews. And um, so it was, it was a, good, a good vehicle, I think. That's really cool. Horses. Yeah. That's really... I and if you look at it, and I'll give you a link for the show notes, I, I pulled out some of the old patent photos, and you can see it's, it's a horse hooked up to these pulleys and harnesses, and it was oh, like... wow. It was, it's an amazing uh, forgotten history. Wow. So tell me a little bit about um, your partner. You have a partner in the podcast. Yes. So, right? so the new podcast... Co-host or partner? Po- partner in crime. Connie Curry 
is the president of the Sable Historical Society. She was, she's also involved with the Long Island Radio and Television Historical Society. And I, I, I would have to ask her how we actually got together, but someone had given her my name or she had heard the old show. So she was interested in, um, with the radio group of, of doing a similar show, a podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got together. We, she, what's great is she knows everybody. And so, you know, you can, she can find people that had parents in vaudeville. She can find people. We were recording an interview with a, a stock car racer who drove stock car, you know, demolition derby, everything on, on the island. And he was talking about a, um, a stock car racer who was famous in the 50s. And, and Connie says, oh, Uncle Len. <laughs> so she, <laughs> she, she, you know, she's great. She, she really knows the depth that uh, I'm still learning. So, uh, so we do them together. Um, similar to, to the, the rig that you're using here, we have a smaller, uh, we use a Marantz digital recorder, but we stick in two microphones and sit around a table. We used to do them in the um, Dowling Library Conference Room. Now we're doing them at Sable, Sable Public Library. That's great. You know, we, we bring people in and, you know, talk and tell stories. That's, that's such a cool thing. Um, so it begs the question, you know, what does the future hold for the podcast in light of the apparent uh, demise of Dowling? Yeah, so, so what Dowling was great with, and, and I'll always thank them, is they were hosting the files. So... Um, that that's a big piece of the technology that you don't always think of, and you know that would have been a cost. Um, so I've, I've we were with the help of the Radio and Television Historical Society, they've they've generously donated some money. So we're moving the files to Libsyn, which is a, a commercial podcast host, host, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, podcast hosting uh, services out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a new URL or a streamlined URL, Long Island History Project and everything will will keep going. We've got an episode going up, hopefully in the next day or two, on the history of Jewish communities on Long Island, um, and we've got a few others lined up for the summer. So you know we're going to keep going. That's great. I'm, I'm I'm actually happy that you're still keeping going with it, in spite of the the apparent demise of Dowling, because they're compelling uh, interviews and they're compelling stories. What I like, one of my favorite things is, is the intro. Because yeah. it's all these different voices and, and accents and things that they're saying as part of the intro. It's really well done. I really enjoy that. And, and one of the things, because I think we were going to talk about like opening music, and I'll, actually I'll, you can tell me where you, you got your music from, but I, I used to use a service called um, the Podsafe Podshow Music Network or something like that. Oh, it was wow. way back in, in the day. But when I stopped that show, I, I, I let that account lapse, so I didn't really have any music. So the, the intro we, I created for the history project is is clips from different interviews spliced together mm-hmm. and one of the earlier interviews with, was with a local band called the Homegrown String Band which was a, a father and mother and two daughters who, who play old time music, banjos things like that and they graciously donated 45 seconds of a song that I put under it and that's uh, and, and that's the other thing with podcasting which I kind of liked from the beginning is the sounds of the voices and especially Long Island accents and there's oh, a nice yeah. range and, and one thing, actually, that I'm proud of, before Dowling finally uh, we closed, there was one uh, circulation, oh, she was tech services, an older woman, but she had this great uh, accent, great Scottish accent. And I finally got her, we did a poetry reading for Poetry Month, and I, and I got her to, to record that, so we have her voice up there. Uh, but it's always great, someone with an accent. Yeah, I, and it's, for people who aren't from New York or Long Island to understand it, you know, there's a Brooklyn accent, there's a distinctive Queens accent, and there is a very distinctive, well, there's several Nassau County accents. 
mm-hmm. where if you're like five towns, it's one sounds one way. If you're in the center, like you know Jericho, there's a different type of accent. There's a North Shore type accent, and then when you come to Suffolk County, it kind of it kind of it gets a little milder, but there's still you know a lot of deep vowel sounds. Yeah, yeah. And it's even crept now to the East End, with the East End years and years ago almost had more of a Providence kind of Rhode Island accent, mm. where now you know the rest of New York has just kind of taken over the East End and right. It's made everything pretty homogeneous with Suffolk County kind of accent. Well, and, and the other angle that I always like is the, the history of Long Island. I think there's, you know, a common perception of Long Island for whatever reason, of you know, bridge and tunnel and, and whatever stories people know from the media. But you dig into the history and, and something like AMC Turn is, is a good yes. uh, revelation for people is, is, is how much actually went on here. And then you, know, you can go through the whole range of time, you know, the aviation and Hempstead Plains and there's, you know, pockets of KKK, and then there's also... Uh, the Nazis in Yampank. Nazis in Yampank, and it, just the, the whole story of the manners, like the pre-British, you know, British, well, pre-Revolution, you know, the, the history of the manners and how the land was, was set up in these great estates, almost. It was like, uh, almost like Game of Thrones. You had the Smith, Lords of the Smithtown Manor, you had Gardner's Island, the That's guy right. owned his own island, and so there's a lot of nuance that I think. And the Nichols had their own thing. Yep, and then actually I've, I've read of um, Nichols were, were financing privateers, so you, you had like pirate ships sailing out of the Connecticut River. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's more and more that, that we'll uh, hopefully be finding out. That's really, really cool. So what happens to the library now at Dowling College? Their materials, their, you know... The local history, the archives, all that stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, as we're recording this last week, um, unfortunately, Middle States uh, is, is pulling the accreditation from the school, uh, mostly for the, you know, financial straits, which is it, it's just getting harder and harder to run a small private college, tuition-dependent college. Um, especially here on the island. Yeah, with the competition and the change in demographics, things like that. True. So um, by the end of August, you know, unless announcements come out, it seems like that will be the end of the of the academic program. So, I mean, there are New York state laws and we didn't have time to prepare too much before the faculty were, were no longer on campus, but like the special collections would need to be housed with a, a similar institution that could care for it and, and make sure they can, uh, you know, keep that continuity. It, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those things like they don't tell you, they don't teach you in library school. How do you take, what, what do you do with a library that's closed? I, right. I know at Southampton, um, we knew one of the librarians there <coughs> They had time to sort of disseminate that collection and find, you know, who wanted this part of the collection or move it to another if you have a multi-campus uh, institution. Right. So, I mean, in terms of Dowling, um, the books at some point, uh, if the creditors take over, they'd have to make a decision, you know, can they donate most of the circulating collection somewhere, um, Better World Books maybe, something like that. Right. But, but I mean, in, in terms of the local history collection, the archives, things like that. That, that would have to be, you know, carefully looked at what what other repository can can give it the care and attention it needs, and that's the determination. You know, I don't expect I'll be involved in that at all, but I'll be watching. I'm, I'm a member of the Oakdale Historical Society, so we, we're also interested in making sure it, it's kept together and kept, you know, safe. Right. Wow. So, you know, you have a vast amount of different experiences, uh, and it's interesting. Again, I've lived mostly in the public library side. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how first living it, being a part timer there, but also, you know, hearing what it was like 
you know, being in, on the academic side. It really is truly interesting to listen to. And for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, many of them are public librarians. So I'm, I'm curious. So as a public librarian, what do you guys, if you even talk about college librarians, do you have your own preconception or like, oh, they're, I don't know. I don't really think Wearing so. tweed jackets and <laughs> smoking pipes. I mean, I think that would be the old perception, maybe okay. from 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. you know, certainly you think of something like from the 1970s or something like right. watching The Paper Chase or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but I guess I'm not a really good judge because I lived it for a couple of years. That's true. And, and we never really, we, we talked about this, we never really crossed paths while you were a part-timer. I know, and isn't I that strange? Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is, again, talking about the opportunities on Long Island. I think a lot of, I know a lot of my colleagues had part-time jobs either in other colleges or in public libraries doing a shift here and there. So I think in terms of Long Island library land, there's a good mix of, you know, people sort of move around and I think they go from public to academic. So it's not and a, it is a, a great divide. It's a very small world. Too. Exactly. That's you know, right. it's a big island with Nassau and Suffolk County, but it is really interesting how many people know people in common like when we yeah. did the the podcast from levittown the assistant director there she knew one of uh, someone i went to high school with mm -hmm. and she knew a couple other people and we started playing the name game next thing you know we knew like 30 people in common okay and then you get facebook involved and then it just explodes from there but you know it, it's always very interesting to see how small library land really is yeah and in terms of you know asking what public librarian's perception is of an academic. When I had gotten the position at, at Dowling, I was working at the time at, at Longwood Public Library. And my friends were saying, oh, wow. So you have to wear a suit to work now? And uh, don't forget <laughs> us, you know, don't forget us poor, uh, you know, uh, public librarians on this side. Hmm. So I, I guess maybe there's a, a feeling that maybe academic librarians make more money. Or maybe they're, I don't want to say, maybe not say smarter, um, it's just different work. Yeah, and, and there's different expectations. So like in terms of promotion and tenure, there there is a research aspect that you have to do certain right. things. So you're on a different track, so you, you just have to focus on some different things. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for sharing all your experiences with sure. you know, living in academia because mm -hmm. I think not a lot of public librarians or librarians who do special libraries really know what happens in the academic side. So I think you've shed a lot of light on that, and that's really a good thing. So um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the podcast end of things. So uh, be prepared. It's going to be a little geeky. It's going to get geeky in here. So we'll be back in just a moment. And we're back, and this is Chris, uh, one of the library pros. Bob, again, is out saving cybersp cyberspace. He's uh, fixing a server um, that had crashed that he helps to maintain. So we're back here with uh, Chris Kretz. He's an academic librarian and local history podcaster, and we're going to talk a little bit about his podcast. So when you first got started out 
uh, with the podcast in 2005, what was the technology that you used to record the podcast? Because it's changed a lot since then. Well, yes and no. You might be disappointed <laughs> in, in, in the... In the the amount I could never be disappointed. But, it's always uh, an, it, whenever we do these things, it's always an eye opener. Right. Well, I mean, literally, we started, or I started with a, a laptop, um, just a, a regular cheap plastic microphone, um, and I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I always use Audacity. So that that's sort of the the secret sauce that I use, uh, the free <laughs> sound, secret <laughs> sauce, I love or it. or the one constant, this Audacity. You know, you could use GarageBand. Um, there's a lot of audio, you know, edit, audio editing software out there. But I, I learned Audacity early on and, and have stuck with it. Um, and so I would record into that and then uh, edit from that, and and that was fun. And, and you know. I mentioned the early show we would do segments about the college and just as a little side story we we did one our Brookhaven campus was was built as sort of an aviation intermodal transportation hub which never really lived up to that dream but one of the things was the the driveway into the Brookhaven off of William Floyd was mm-hmm. some kind of innovative or or strange traffic control um construction so it was like half of a I forget the name of it. It's not a cloverleaf, but it was some kind of special designed way to keep people making turns without running into each other. So we wanted to get, so we, we recorded the intro to that segment live and I was driving whatever I was driving back then, probably a Honda uh, something. And uh, Lisa Esposito, who's actually at South Huntington now as a public library, was in the passenger seat holding a, a microphone <laughs> as, <laughs> as we were driving, trying to get the sound. You know, we wanted to be, we, we were, we were uh, you know, sticklers for authenticity so we had so, to be making the turn as we uh, were that, talking about and there were no turn. sounds of bumps or anything during that whole we didn't thing. hit anybody <laughs> no, so, so it worked um so but th- then you know the, the biggest upgrades were microphones which were i was interested to see that they i, I you know you went from like a 10 15 logitech microphone to uh oh god and, i remember and, those things yeah which which worked for a while but then you you, you know you, you can hear the quality change so we uh, i got a better mic uh, xlr mic Mm-hmm. Which is about ninety bucks. I don't know how much of these that we're using that you've got here. Uh, the two that we're using were twenty dollars each. Okay, so maybe they've come down. And since then the others, put... yeah, the others that I have in the case, I would think it was fifty-two dollars for three with the case and the uh, the little holders. So okay, the prices, but again, it, the prices are all over the place. And and the biggest probably change was when I bought um, the digital recorder, which uh, the one I got was a Marantz, um, which is a size of it like a tape recorder from back in the day, but it, it's all digital so you, you can hook in uh, xlr mics and mm-hmm. record onto that and then export it and i do the editing after so um but it's been it and then beyond that i really haven't changed much so I, I i take that recorder i've recorded in people's living rooms and kitchens and done a lot of oral histories and things like that um or if it's you know our studio for a long time was the dowling library we would just set it up on the table and, mm-hmm. and worked with that so you know my process is my record into the Marantz offload it into Audacity, do my editing, and then upload it to the server and then um, play it up off a, off a WordPress blog, usually what I use. Right. Wow. So with, the, with the unit you were using, did you have the ability to control mic levels, or was it all just one unit? Uh, you could, not the separate tracks. So it would, it would, you could change the gain of the, of the people. I, I don't do... I, I keep an eye on it and sort mm-hmm. of keep it in mid-range, and then I, I, we can talk about our differences in, in approach. But I do a lot of post-production work, so I'll, I, I, a lot of times I'll do be doing a report recording, and I'll think, oh, I can fix that in post, <laughs> or I'll make a note to say, you know, 
Uh, he, he opened his water bottle there, so cut that <laughs> off. Edit that out. Um, so I, only because I haven't been in the podcast world for more than maybe three or four years, in the beginning, um, did you start with an RSS feed? Did you start with iTunes? You know, how did you get it out to the world? Yeah, so I mean, the, the we had a, a web page at the, on the Dowling Library site, so that was sort of like the home of it. But um, I did a lot of reading, and there, there was a, a guy, he's still around, actually he's at Libsyn now, but uh, Rob Walsh had a, there was an early podcast called Podcast 411, and he, he would have tutorials, and I taught myself how to make the RSS feed, which if you've never seen it, it you know, it's like it's XML coding. It's just right. It, it wouldn't make any sense until you actually started staring at it for a long time. But so so once I learned how to do that, it was pretty easy to keep that up to date. And so I we submitted to iTunes pretty much from the beginning. And I should go back in and check to see if that is they're still there because it's been a while since uh, <laughs> we posted anything new. But um, yeah, so so from the beginning, uh, iTunes was part of the strategy. Um, but beyond that, because most people, it's hard to get discovered in, in iTunes unless you, you get onto like a trending topic or, or right. you get a, a rush of subscribers and all of a sudden you're on the front page. So it was more word of mouth and, and getting the alumni, you know, getting it into the alumni newsletter. And anytime uh, a new episode comes up, we would have signs around the library and in different parts of campus. And so, uh, you know, a lot of legwork, a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. So what do you think some of the pitfalls were with starting a podcast? Because I, I can say what my experiences right. are, but I'd like to hear, because you started back in 05, so you have, your experiences may be a little bit different than what no, we No, I, I mean, well, learning the technology, but that's like learning anything, you know, if you, you can learn it. So that was a hurdle, but it wasn't, wasn't too hard to do. Um, you know, having a clear idea of what it is you're trying to accomplish um, Keeping helps. the focus. Keeping the focus, right, because it's, it's easy to, to get off track or, you know go down rabbit holes that, that don't really help. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, getting it out there. It, it, you know, the, the beauty of it was no one told me you couldn't do it or, or even, you know, stop me. So, so as, long, as long as you don't have anyone, you know, telling stopping you and you have a good idea and you think it, you can find an audience, it, the, the, you know, the, the hurdle is always even today finding, finding the audience. That's right. Although it's easier now because this was before social media and things like that, so yeah, social media is a game changer. Yeah, I mean because that's what everyone's publicity is now. It's social mm -hmm. media, and everybody uses the same for the most part. You know, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, um, a little bit of LinkedIn. Uh, dare I say, Google Plus? Now, you is that working well for you or? The, I, yeah, we never really went with the Google Plus mm -hmm. because it, it's that old. You know, that old hacky thing, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear <laughs> it, if you post something to Google+, Plus, will anybody see it? Right, right. Um, I have a Google+, Plus account, and I play with it from time to time, but usually it's somebody using something like Hootsuite or, you know, some kind of bulk poster. So if I'm following them on Facebook, I'm getting the same info as if, you know, if I'm, fo I'm getting the same results okay. in Google+, Plus, but to a certain extent, you're getting that with Twitter as well. Mm -hmm. Um but in the hierarchy of social media, you know, Facebook is king, Twitter is Jack, <laughs> and you know, Google Plus is a two of spades, maybe. We we had one episode, uh, somebody pinned it to a Pinterest board, so <laughs> that's always you yeah. never know. You never Pin know. Pinterest is, you know, I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here and sound a little sexist, but 
Pinterest is for girls. <laughs> All right, you said that now. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there goes my uh, my listenership right down. But the you stairs. know, along Mark the that lines, forty-seven <laughs> minutes and forty-two seconds. And you don't edit, right? So that's staying. Yeah, that's there. Yep. But you know, in terms of getting the audience, it, it's interesting to watch because each episode we do is on a different focus of, of Long Island history. So one one could be twentieth century about Robert Moses, and the next one could be about you know the the spy ring and Setauket and seventeen eighty or something. So it's always interesting to see which ones catch on. And, and a lot of it is, they talk about the influencer. So if you can get it into the hands of somebody else who could promote it. And that is a yeah. huge thing. So we, we got one that we interviewed a, a documentary filmmaker who, was, who did a documentary on Tesla, who had a, a lab up in Shoreham, a right. Wardenclyffe lab. And he had a, um, a screening of it in California soon after we uploaded the episode. So I tweeted it to the, uh, the theater that was doing the, the screening and that must have kicked into something because that took off too and we got hundreds of shares out of that so that's great yeah you just hope that you can keep that momentum yeah and actually you know i i took the opportunity since i was coming in here to dig out some of the stats and and they they have been consistently growing what the hell is that uh, that was a, we're having a thunderstorm here okay so that's if you heard that i don't know if that made the mics it sounds like it did it was just a little bit of thunder hopefully we don't lose power so you know the um the upward progression is there. So I, th I think that's the other thing. The longer you're doing it, you know, you can you can build a following. I, I would say if in the beginning, don't expect, you know, weather the storm. <laughs> with, <laughs> uh, no pun intended. But, you know, the, the, those early days, as you build your following, it's, it's going to take a little while. So it's, a, it's a, sort of a long march. Yeah. I mean, it, when we started, my expectations were not super high. If I thought I was performing for 30 people total, mm -hmm then I would be happy. And I'm just so happy to see, you know, the numbers that we have now. Right. I mean, we had a really big, um, uh, lack of a better word uh, to describe it, a big bounce when we did Levittown, our last podcast, mm -hmm. because they plastered it on their social media, put it on their website. They list, they shared it um, on listservs. So we got a huge bounce from that. And, you know, I'm very appreciative to, to uh, Levittown for that. Um, but you can see how when there is one topic and it resonates with either a community or a group, it will grow exponentially. Yeah, yep. And social media is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it shows the value, I think, going back to getting these voices on uh, onto a forum where the, you might not necessarily hear these types of voices talking. And, and so you're, you know, for you it's public librarians. For me it's, you know, historical societies and, and researchers. And, and so we're all sort of putting these new voices out there, which is fun. And it's voices that if it wasn't under contract with NBC, ABC, <laughs> CBS, you didn't get out there. Right, right. You know, and then maybe you have UHF back in the old days. Maybe you could do something like that or, you know, go on FM radio. Or But mm -hmm. if you didn't have that corporate because you needed the antenna with right, the 50,000 right. watts of power, now you don't need 50,000 watts of power. You need a an iPad yep, or yep. a small recording device and a connection to the internet and enough brains to get it onto iTunes, and now you have an audience. Mm -hmm. And I think as much as television destroyed radio as a medium with regard to like radio shows like in the old days with Milton, not Milton Berle, with like Ben Crosby and uh, uh, Bob Hope and, and those types of shows that were almost vaudevillian, mm -hmm. You know, TV came along and just destroyed that type of radio, and radio survived by playing music. This is changing TV, altering TV, and I think diminishing the 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's diminishing the uh, the power that TV once had. Yeah, it's it's not as monolithic. I mean, well, what I like to think, what I have thought of recently is, you ever see those like science demonstrations where someone takes a big cylinder, and I forget what they're trying to show, but they'll dump in like um, baseballs, and they say, "You think it's full yet?" And then they'll dump in yes. marbles, and then it's not full. Then they'll dump in a powder, and then they'll dump in a liquid. So I mean, the things that we're doing, these podcasting that are not not sort of at the pro level or the commercial level, we're, we're sort of trickling down through this whole mass of other media, and we fit we're filling those the spaces exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it they find audiences, which is, yeah. I think is is fascinating. And and you know, like if you did a, a a library program and and fifty sixty people came, would you be you know consider that a success? So if you do a podcast and you get seventy eighty listeners for that podcast, you know, can you correlate that and say, well, that's just, you know, we would have been happy if they physically came, so should we, is that a, a good enough indicator that they're listening, you know, that size of an audience? How, how big does the audience have to be before you say, all right, you know, it's worth doing? And the bounce effect, too. Yeah. So, like, say you have a really big episode, and now you see that trickle effect to the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So, if, let's say, you get 150 downloads on a new one, maybe you're going to get 30 on the one before that and 15 on the one before that one and then another 10 before that. And then, and then sometimes you just get a bounce on the first episode because they say, well, now I want to start from the beginning. Right. And it's that long tail, they say. you know, so That content is still there so they can go back and discover it. It's true. So tell me a little bit about the technical support uh, that you did get from Dowling. We talked about it earlier where they allowed you to host. Right. And, um, and you know what? And, and I was thinking today, and I, I, I should mention, Charlie McCabe was one of our IT guys, and he was always... He's a gruff guy, but he was great. So I'd always say, "Hey, how does how does this mic work, or why is this happening?" And he'd be like, oh, "You have to do it this way and stuff." But I, I think he appreciated. So he he was my go to guy for for when I was learning audio how to uh, how to figure out what was going wrong and and stuff. So he he you know his his tech support was was greatly needed in the beginning. So I always appreciate that. So um, so did you mirror? Um, the service to iTunes, I mean, kind of like what we do now where you have your host and then iTunes kind of mirrors it and promotes it or, you know, kind of puts it out there. Or um, I think we talked about this before where you had your RSS feed and you still use iTunes. I just wonder, like, where podcasts were before iTunes. Did it even, I well, mean, well, in a sense, I mean, there were some, but they, I mean, they, just, they were sort of born at the same time. So well, yeah, I mean, the whole idea of the name podcast came right, from iPods. It, right. mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just wonder, just wondering out loud. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I would not have done what I did if iTunes hadn't made it easy. So, I, you know, the, the, the physical files were on the Dowling servers, but the feed was submitted to iTunes, so whatever, you know, mumbo-jumbo RSS <laughs> magic was was being pulled there, which is, there's my technical ability. Mumbo jumbo, I like yeah. that. But, you know, so, yeah, so I don't think that's mirroring, but it, they were it submitted to iTunes and pulled through that. So before you talked about your home base being Dowling for recording, mm-hmm. and you said you've been to di- many different places to do the recordings, were primarily most of them done at Dowling, or did you, for whatever reason, have to go... You said before somebody's home or another location. Uh, now would, you're at Sayville. Right, right. I, I would say that's uh, an interesting experience recording in different places because just in terms of the microphones and oh, yeah, yeah. sound bouncing mm-hmm. off of walls and things. Right. I, I would say most of them we we got Connie and I would bring them into Dowling, um, but then I did a few like um, Ray Adele, who was an old radio broadcaster from the '50s on you know, on Long Island. I, we recorded in his basement. 
uh, Carl Grossman, who's a journalist uh, out in Sag Harbor. I went to his his little cottage, <laughs> which is once I found it, <laughs> it was great. Um, so I, you know, I like getting out. I like I like that kind of. You get a different soundscape around you, and it sounds different. And um, especially like with oral histories, we I interviewed alumni, and sometimes that you know to make it easier on them, you would go to their kitchen or house or whatever. And it kind of gives it an an, an audio patina. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't always sound the same, yeah. which is nice. Yeah. Have you and, and we? I, I didn't. We, we never work off a script, by the way. Not mm-hmm. that we're looking down at paper and, and anything, but um, it's a little bit off script. But have you ever thought of trying to get Patricia McCann? She was an old time radio host. Oh, she was on WOR. WOR. Yeah, yeah, that's what I grew up listening to. Yeah. Um, is she still around? She does radio commercials does, all does the she? time. Okay. In the middle of her whatever she's doing, she go Patricia McCann. Like anybody <laughs> knows who that is anymore, yeah, yeah. you know. Are any of the gamblings alive? John, John A, John R. I'm not Probably. sure. Probably. Okay. Not senior, but junior's definitely still mm-hmm. alive. Um, yeah, and and you know the one thing, which like I said, I took about a year or two break from uh, doing any kind of audio. But but once your brain starts thinking, you you start thinking like a producer or a showrunner. And you, when exactly once you start thinking, oh, I could interview this person, or you hear a story and say, you know, can you put me in touch with that? So uh, one thing I'm working on now is. Can we do an episode on the history of Long Island bagel shops and find enough That's bagel what that owners? was about. That's, yeah, I put it yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, Chris had actually texted me saying if I knew, asking if I knew any any uh, Long Island bagel store owners. So, like, could you get anecdotes from you know why did they found it or what was their oldest? You know, I'm, I'm compiling names of bagel stores and how far back they go and, and see what I can make out of that. Wow, did you have Strathmore on the Strathmore? Uh, yeah, Bagel Boss. Bagel Boss, um, yeah. And for those of you who don't live in New York anymore and have moved (laughs) to Florida and Texas and the Carolinas, we have better bagels. (laughs) I do that at least once a podcast. So we we, we just touched on finding guests. How do you find your guests? Because for me, because we live in library land, it's Mm -hmm. kind of easy. Well, not easy. It's relatively easy to find a guest. We know what's interesting, and I'll I'll ask you this. Have you ever had someone say no? I've never had someone I contacted... Not exactly. Okay. Um, sometimes you don't get a response, mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part, I would say ninety to ninety-five percent have been positive. Okay. And no one has actually said uh, uh, that'll be fifty dollars, please. That'll right, be a hundred dollars right. speaking yeah. fee. So, because I mean, that's, it, that's it nice. is a weird thing to sit in a room, you know, wearing headphones, talking into these mics, and it's not live, and it's not, you know. You're you're sort of going on the promise that this will become something and people will listen to it. Right, right. exactly. It's, it's an you're act of faith, almost. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so you know, th- this is the beauty of working with Connie. I, I mentioned that you know she's been involved in Long Island history for a long time, so she can she could fill our our guest card from for the next ten years probably just with people she knows or who's, who she's worked with, things like that. Other than that, it's it's when I hear of a good story, I'll contact somebody or you know um, at Dowling when I the, the person I just interviewed on, on Jewish communities on Long Island, she just published a, an Arcadia book on that, but she was working down the hall from me at Dowling, so we had set that up. So That's great. You, you gotta you got to jump on you know ideas as soon as you have them. I, I think I mentioned to you like five years ago, someone at school mentioned, oh, my friend's uh, uncle or grandfather was a fisherman out east, and he was the... Um, you know, he was the basis for the story that became Jaws, and I was always thought, "Oh, I should interview him." And then that person graduated, and I never. I said, "Darn it!" I, yeah, I, I could have had the Jaws guy on. 
Oh, yeah, that would have been great. And I yeah. f- again, when we spoke about that, I couldn't remember the guy's name, and now I still can't remember his yeah. name. So, you know, you think like a producer and, and move fast, button, you know, button people up as soon as you. And I always idea. found it interesting in Radio, in radio Land um, where, you know, every day a radio show will have more guests on. And that just doesn't happen by texting the guy the night, the night before and saying, it, It's a lot of panel. work, yeah. I mean, what we're doing now, the recording, is, is almost just the beginning of all the work you have to do to get the show. Get it ready, get it prepared, get it up there, sure. writing show notes. And you have to get the concept, you have to get the guest, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, make your show notes, get ready to go. A thousand and the recording, Yeah, and the recording is actually the easiest part. I know, yeah. You can relax almost when yeah, you're recording. It's, it's, it's almost like uh, planning a wedding. Yeah. Because once you're actually do, having the wedding, it kind of just runs on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, with the Library Pros, we don't edit after we record. Can't you tell? And, uh, <laughs> and you know, that works great for us because we like the organic feel right, right. Of, of the whole thing. But for the Long Island History Project, which, by the way, has a l- much more polished sound than our podcast does. I don't know um, about that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just because this is more chatty, mm-hmm. hangout kind of thing. Um, yours, for lack of a better word, sounds very academic. That's interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but I, I guess I could see that. So, yeah, yeah and, and I again, I didn't grow up or I didn't study uh, media or, or editing. I, I just always had it in my head that, you know, I wanted everyone to sound as good as possible. And, and, and the other thing is is sort of tighten it up. So, you know, a lot of time in interviews, hopefully I haven't d- done this too much, but people can take a roundabout way to answer a question or they might stumble or, or sure. sneeze or something. So. It just Ver- verbal crutches and yeah, yeah right or or dead end questions that sort of don't lead anywhere or things like that so sure. um to me it's always a challenge to tighten it up and, and you know what what what's the important part what's the most interesting part um to convey what was actually part of the discussion and sort of wi- you know cut off the the parts that just are filler around the edges we see that always was something that i said to myself when we started this whole project you know how am i going to know what what to What's cut good? out, mm-hmm. you know, other than maybe some some dead spaces or or somebody, you know, doing right, one of right, these yeah. or that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? um, yeah, and and you know what what I found a lot of times is people j- restate themselves a lot. So you know they'll they'll answer a question and then you know it, it's answered, but they'll elaborate or they'll give another example and things like that. So you you just and and just make sure when when you prep them for the recording, say so, you know just make sure we're gonna edit this down a little so we'll take out bits and, and make it shorter so they don't feel right, like so they say, what happened to my Superman it, story? Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's the best part. Why did you cut that out? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you said you used Audacity. You know, Audacity is pretty simple to use, right? It, it is. I was surprised, you know, once you get over the controls of it and, and looking at a waveform. So when you look at audio sound recordings, it's like, you know, up and down lines. Yeah, it's that graph oh. kind of looks Yeah, almost like, like an EKG smushed right. together. Mm-hmm. But but once you realize each blob is a word or a sound, and basically you're cutting and pasting words, and so you just have to be careful where you cut so that you're not creating, you know, hard cuts in between. But y- it's yeah, amazing so, the so effects you don't cut that off you can get. somebody yeah. in mid-sentence yeah. or something like mm-hmm. that. Or adding a, se- a period where there shouldn't be a period. Right, right. And yeah. And you don't want to change the context of anything they're saying, so there's, you know... You want true. To, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, it's one of those pauses that we should have edited <laughs> out. <laughs> so if you were going to implement a service at a library for podcasting, what would you want to see in terms of, you know, the equipment that the students or, for that matter, you know, in a public setting, patrons would use? Um, that's something, 
here at Sachem, we're developing what we're calling the studio. Okay. It's going to be a makerspace. Mm-hmm. And we're doing everything 3D printing, laser cutting, 3D scanning. Children's is going to have hand tools for kids, plus all the coding and robots and all that okay. stuff. And Teens has a creation station where you, where you um, you're going to green screen video and ed- video editing, you know, Photoshop, audio editing, a lot of recording. They, have a, they actually have um, downstairs in, in the teen department their own board okay with a couple of microphones and things like that so that's something that we're working on here um the soft launch is probably going to be september and the grand opening will be in december not that i'm plugging it or anything but and is that mostly meant to be like self-serve like or would you it's going to be guided there'll be classes but as um because there's liability involved there's going to be some training with you know, mm-hmm. certain particular pieces of equipment because of, A, the cost of the equipment, and B, the potential for injury. So we have to, you know, take that into account, too. But, you know, it, it's something that's cool because we're developing it all at the same time. Right. So it's kind of like, ah, <laughs> but exciting at the same yeah. time. So if you were going to implement it, that kind of service, um, you know, and having it available for the public, you know, what would you... Um, as far as implementation goes, how would you go about that? I, you know, th- there's the hardware and, and making sure you've got, you know, all the right cables and software and things like that. But I, I would be more interested in um, the platform and, and sort of the infrastructure around it because I, I think, you know, if, if you tell people, hey, you can come in and record anything you want, they're going to say, you know, well, you know, what? I, I think if if you created it around programs or like like the StoryCorps program, like come in and interview someone from your family or something. So put a structure around it that there's a reason for them to come Context in and do it. And Context and limitations yeah. of right. what you can do. Or, or you know, create uh, the library podcast where, you know, they're recording their own segments and then you're you're packaging it into something that, you know, people would, would use. So, you know, I, I think audio is, is easy to record and, and to do, but it's got to be produced in a way that, you know, it, it becomes something that people can digest, you know, and it makes sense. So, like, what, if, if it's something that's not just for their home use, like they come in and record, but um, if, if it's something you want to promote or at least, you know, distribute it somehow, I think the library can be important in giving that platform and that structure. Well, I've always said, too, how cool would it be if, you know, insert your name of library here, became a podcasting hub. So mm-hmm. now you have five or six podcasts working out of your library. And how cool would it be as a patron to say, I really want to start a podcast, but I really don't have the money for the investment for the equipment. I really don't have an investment for microphones. You know, it, I wish I could go into a turnkey environment mm-hmm. so I can record my podcast, do all the hard stuff, and then just come in and say, I'm going to reserve you know, the board and the mics and the, the podcasting setup from two to, fo- two to four, two-hour you know, time frame, and record my podcast during that time, and reserve it once a week, once every two weeks. That you know, right. have that kind of exposure, and then you take it one step further. How cool would it be if you had bands who came in, who recorded, you know, their stuff at the library? Now it gets a little more dicey with regard to sound. But they do make sound booths and right, portable right. sound booths. And you and could you could probably set that up, right? I would think. And then yeah, so I mean maybe you have a new music podcast from the library. Or, sure. Or every every couple of months you have someone just do their demo and you Or and you get I, to I know one of the libraries out east was trying to set this up, having a streaming service with local artists. So in the agreement that they're gonna sign, 
in order to use the equipment, one stipulation would be that they would donate whatever music, even though they're going to try to sell it, mm -hmm. they would have to donate at least one song to the streaming service that the library would provide for local artists. Or, you know, right, right. these are all, I'm just pulling this out of the well, sky. Well, I think what, what you have to do is, and you tell me with your the patrons that you work with, are, are they in the audio habit? Are they, a, are they podcast listeners now, or is that some of the work that has to be done sort of get them introduced to, hey, did you know you can listen to these things? You know, we know Serial has been taking off the last two years, the NPR podcast. So, you know, the people call it a podcasting renaissance. So, you know, maybe it's more in the public eye. But is is the Long Island public listening to podcasts so that when a library podcast came along, they would be ready for it? Or does that need to be sort that, of instilled really, in them? That's a really good question. Because um, when it comes to this stuff, you know, we're... The concept is that it's for everyone, but you, you know we would all be lying if we didn't say we were focusing on the demo that's the twenty somethings mm -hmm. because they're the ones that are most comfortable with this equipment. So are the twenty somethings listening to podcasts? I don't know what the stats are. I've never looked at it, or is it more you know people our age? You know, twenty seven. Well, and and there 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 are twenty year olds making them, so I would assume yeah, they're making would, them for yeah their, their peer group. So you know, is that a connection that can be made and I think at one of your workshops I, I asked people like do you you teach people how to use e-readers and, and things like that have, have you ever or has anyone ever asked can you teach me how to use you know a podcasting app or you know what is this thing called podcasting well you know what it is it's one of those things where you know if you don't let people know that it's there mm -hmm. the question won't come up right so if let's say conceptually we start our our um, our studio and studio meaning our makerspace mm -hmm. here at the library. And we start doing the publicity for it, and people are, start to come in. Maybe we have programming directed towards learning how to use the liquid resin printer or lose, using the laser cutter, or come in and we could do a class on what exactly is podcasting mm -hmm. and do a podcast of the class. Say, well, this is what a podcast is. Please ask questions, because guess what? This is going to be on <laughs> iTunes next week, and you can hear yourself on the podcast. Right, right. How cool would it be to start your own radio show? And if you, to reach out to the older generation, meaning older than us, remember Bob Grant, remember Rambling with Gambling, remember mm -hmm. you know, all of these old, I don't want to say old-time talk shows, but talk shows from the 70s and the 80s, where now you can do your own. Right, right. I mean, they would obviously have to have some some lawyering involved with that to say you can't use, you know, foul language, you can't right. talk about hate speech, you can't talk about this or that, you know. Yeah, and that could limiting be... Limiting it to a certain degree without infringing on, you know, the First Amendment. Right, so, yeah, so I guess getting back to my one of the points I was making, you, you need to sort of channel this or, or build the structure around it so that it's easy for people to say, all right, I would like to listen to that. Because if they just came in and saw mics and buttons and, you know, I think that's too much of a leap for them to say, to see the potential of what they're doing. But if, if you can create the structure where, you know, now we're going to record stories about this and we'll, we'll put it up on the podcast. Or right. something. And even have maybe a, a library staff member there doing the engineering. Yeah. Yeah. You taking know, sitting care with of that. the board, making sure the board is working mm -hmm. and they're just doing their thing. And I would imagine, you know, you'll find s kids or younger people that there will be the future engineer who will get interested and, you know, maybe there will be some that will want to run the equipment and then that'll be there for them to work that part of it. And some will just want to be the announcers or the, you know, the on-air talent or whatever. Sure. So switching gears for a second, talking a little bit about, you know, let's get a little geeky here for a second. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference on type of microphone? 
No, and this is probably where I'll disappoint you because I found what worked and I, st- I stuck with it. So I, I have um, two Shure PG81s, the condenser mics. They're probably a little too sensitive for, for some of the rooms I record in, but mm-hmm. I've, I've had them for like five, ten years now. So I stick with them. It doesn't, um, if it works, stick with it. Yeah. Yeah, because I know that when we did our first podcast, and if any of the listeners are listening to this heard the first podcast, Sounds a little different. It's because we went with a uh, USB mic. It's a Blue Yeti mic. Great mic mm-hmm. if you want to do a one mic podcast, which is very echoey because now, you know, we talk about people's personal space and everybody's huddled around one microphone. You know, it gets a little, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but you're getting a little closer than maybe you really are comfortable. Right, right. Yeah. Um, no, and, and, and the, yeah, the mic is definitely something you want to pay attention to. And, and the, the more you can invest in that, you know, is probably money, definitely money worth spending. So, you know, in terms of mics and equipment, if you could, you won the lottery tomorrow, mm-hmm. and for some strange reason you still want to do a podcast, and you could get all new equipment, what would you get? You know what, I would I would probably, well, I, I know the Marantz has moved on from the 660, so they're the higher end now. I, I would get it, and I don't know if you talk about your mixer, but you've, I've, I've, I've thought about getting a mixer, and, and so that's something I would break down and teach myself how to how to install and, and, and run a mixer um you know I'd, I'd love to have a space so I'm, I'm looking at my garage and saying you know hmm, I could maybe <laughs> put in some boom mics and things like that well, so. it's funny you say that you know um Jay Moore the comedian mm-hmm. uh he has a podcast called More Stories and whenever he has a guest they always say the same thing this is a pretty cool garage because he has it set up in yeah. his garage with soundproofing, you know, right, material right. around. Well, it's it. Mark Marin had Obama in his garage. I mean, he does. Yeah. He listen to his WTF podcast is out of his yeah garage. So, yeah. And if the library had a space, I would book it and I would come in <laughs> and use that too. So. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's part of the the cool thing about here at Sachem, we could put them in a quiet study room. Mm-hmm. We c- if there's n- if the boardroom, which is where we are now, isn't available, um, I. Uh, when I recorded episode four with Melanie Cardone, who, by the way, I have to introduce you to her. She's a local history. Yeah, I, I, read, I listened to that one. That was she a good is, one. She is, you want to talk about nerd at nerd. She, her husband and my wife just have this understanding that when we're texting between the two of us, not to get in the way. <laughs> just let them go. Because half the time she doesn't even know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, did you see what's going to happen with the new iPhone this and and did you see this? And, you know, we completely, we call it geeking out. We used mm-hmm. to work together. We Friday night geek out. So, you know, when we recorded episode four, the boardroom was being used. Um, all the study rooms were being used. So they put us in the local history room, which I thought was apropos for the, for the, the topic. guest. Yep. It was great. So, you know, what's nice about here at Sachem is there's always going to be a nook or a cranny that we can squeeze into. Right. Well, we're, I mean, we're sitting now, we're looking at through a glass window at the... Uh, what, part of the reference area, I guess, or there's tables out there. So it's I mean, a quiet study area, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, maybe two years from now we'll be doing this and you'll have an audience. I mean, why not have a, you know, talk about going full circle to old radio days, you'd have an in-studio audience for, <laughs> for your podcast. You and that'd be cool. yeah. That would be really good. So, but, you know, everything is ebb and flow yeah, and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, as far as, you know, this mixing board, talking about dream stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that, because we use the iPad, I don't think that I would really want to upgrade from this. I love right. this board. It's a well, four track, and four and, track is good. And and it gets down to what is what's your show? What's the purpose of it? And True. and for Connie and I, we're doing interviews, so it's it, to me, it's more get 
get the interview, get it on tape, you know, do the editing afterwards. But mm -hmm. you don't need a lot around that. You don't need too much uh, beyond what we're using. Well, talking about, um, you know, the production of it, um, we get our music from just going to iTunes and looking for, you know, royalty-free music. Okay. Um, and if I can get a donation from an artist, that always helps too. Mm -hmm. um, you said that you had that uh, account from that one service at one point. Where do you get and your and music that, now? Well, well from, from now, I mean, I'm, I, we're using the standard intro, so I haven't changed that up yet. I, I have done a few, two, two sources I'll mention. One is more for sound effects, but um, music I've used a few times. Um, University of California, Santa Barbara has digitized a whole collection of wax cylinder recordings. So yes. you're talking about late 1800s, early 1900s, Edison Records and Tuscanini and, you know, pol polkas and folk dancing and operas. So it's a whole range. And it you know, has that scratchy kind of... Yeah. old uh, Victrola kind of sound. So I've <clears throat> downloaded a few of those and, and for certain episodes where it made sense, um, put that in, gave it a nice background. Sure. Um, and then there's a place called the Free Sound Project, which which I just learned out. I learned, I was reading some book. I, I have a library of books about NPR that I've <laughs> sort of been trying to steal their ideas, but it turns out a lot of their, or some of their shows use this Free Sound uh, service where you, you just log in and, and it's free sound effects so people have gone and recorded trains going by and seagulls and waves that's and great so you you know you give them credit there's different um creative commons licenses on them so you just have to make sure you're meeting all the criteria but it's usually like attribute it to them or or you know give them a, a note in the show notes um so you know we did a whole series on um during poetry month in april on we, we found old power ballad well we called them power ballads old uh, ballads about Long Island, so about Revolutionary War heroes, things mm -hmm. like that, and and I um, added a lot of sound effects to them to sort of uh, modernize them a little. But it, um, so it was interesting stuff. So that's the other thing I like about the podcast, which I haven't mentioned, is just experimenting with audio and what you can do. And sure. So we've done dramatic readings and and sort of scripted dramas and things like that. So that's fun. It, it and it is fun. It, it, when we were looking for for music for our beds for for the podcast. There's a lot of not so good music out there, so it, it is difficult to try to weed out some of the stuff you can yeah, use. Yeah. Well, and the beauty of it is, you know, the intro is 45 seconds long, so if you can find a good 45 second piece of a song, exactly, <laughs> you can exactly. get it in there. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about the hackathon that you uh, attended at the New York Public Library this past week. Yeah, that was uh, New York Public Library Labs and the um, the Moth. I think the NPR show, The Moth, were the main mm -hmm. sponsors of it. And it was a group of people. Um, I don't know how they let me in, but I got in. <laughs> I was accepted. And so for two days, uh, we sat in this great um, room of the New York Public Library. And, and it, we split into groups. And it was, it was people interested in audio and tackling different problems, how to engage people with it, how to make it more searchable. So, you know, a lot of people were programmers and coders, and they came up with ways to... Um, take a oral history recording and, and map it to a physical map as they mentioned mm -hmm. different places so you know this sort of like a skunk works kind of r&d weekend where you come up with ideas i i gravitated to a, um, a group of great oral historians some people from brooklyn public library brooklyn historical society and and we didn't have quite the coding chops so we sort of wireframed and came up with an idea of uh, everyone i think recognizes oral history as something unique that libraries and archives can bring to sort of this audio table because mm -hmm. that we're the people doing them and keeping them. So 
problem is they're so long that you know you don't necessarily listen to a whole audio history uh, oral history so we we came up with a mythical app that would let you cut pieces out of it and share it so like take a every labor day you go to a maybe go to an oral history collection on veterans and maybe find two minutes of somebody describing you know their experiences and share that um or something about a neighborhood and just cut a, you know a piece of it and, and share that so it's sort of you know, thinking about ways like we were talking, get, getting people into the audio habit, and this two-day sure. two-day uh, hackathon was just a lot of smart people uh, coming up with different ways to play with audio. It was great. That's really cool. Yeah, that's. Uh, I wish there's something I could have gone to, um, because that's where you get ideas. Yeah, right. And and you meet other people doing similar work or trying to work uh, on the same projects. And so. it's just a viewing that same subject from a different angle. Mm -hmm. Right, and it was great that the, it was a library acting as the host to this so you know it could be done out here sure get it get a, a library behind it yeah and then the publicity and everything else but mm -hmm. yeah it's it, it's almost like when they have the um the maker fairs at queen's uh the queen's museum of science okay yeah um, same idea but more audiophile mm -hmm. right that, that really is well and it just shows you there's an audience you know there's talking about <coughs> geeking out you know everyone there's a tribe for everything so there's the, the audio tribe audio geek tribe there's a Maker tribe, and, and so there's a, there's an audience for any any kind of podcast you could think of. You oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, god, you can. I mean, and every podcast, like a Joe Rogan or uh, or Jay Moore, depending on who the guest is, the podcast shifts to whatever they're yeah they're talking true. about. Well, and and the other thing I always thought was um, since we're both librarians, I always thought a, a reference librarian is an inherently good interviewer. Because you think of the it's reference, of the interview, that's the reference that interview, you yeah. have to think about getting information out of them, how you're going to ask the question, and if they, you know, they're stonewalling or they don't understand you. you the book was had a blue way. cover, and it was about <laughs> right. kittens. Exactly. Well, can you tell me more about that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's all about trying to tap that unknown knowledge that the patron doesn't even know they have. Right. Right. And so, you know, we're just this is just a different format of that. Exactly. It's interesting. So now that you've listened to a few of our podcasts, what and since you're a, you're a veteran at this point, uh, what tips would you have for uh, for Bob and myself? All right, actually, I, I actually googled this, but I remember this from from library school. Do you know? Uh, you ever heard of Ranganathan and his rules or laws of, of librarianship? There's five of them. It's vaguely familiar. So I, I can I can adapt that to podcasting. So one is he, he would say every books are for reading so podcasts are for listening right every every book has its reader every podcast has its listener every listener has its podcast so you guys you have your your target audience is library professionals it's in your name so it's pretty easy right so you know i would i would just say make sure you get that out to whatever networks i know you were at the library long on library conference um twitter any any way you know build that audience because one of his other rules was that the library is a living organism, so a podcast is a living organism. It really is. So you you know you need that community, that feedback uh, for a lot of things. I'm missing one, but the other one he had was save the time of the of the reader, and th th this goes back to my philosophy. So I was, if you say save the time of the listener, what does that mean to you? To me, that that means cutting out pauses and things like that. But for you, it might mean you know getting to a tar a topic that. Yeah. So I mean, any you're you're competing. We're, we talked about media. We're competing with a lot of different media. So why, 
if someone's going to invest 40 minutes or so to listen, you know, make sure it's something worthwhile to. Yeah. And, and the length, you know, somewhere I read that the length of the podcast should be whatever the average commute time is in that area. So actually in Long Island, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it could be a pretty long uh, show. Could be two, so, if you're on a train, it's exactly. two, two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that helps or anything, but that's just a way to phrase it. No, that's uh, great. Library wise. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all of your experiences with us. And, uh, and we can only hope, you know, that we have the longevity that you've had. I mean, even with your two year break, um, there's something to be said for being around that long. Well, it, it, let me ask you this, Tim, because I, I gave I used to give a few talks on on podcasting, and, and I would end the slide with my contact information, and I would say, you know, I, I'm I'm waiting to hear what you guys do with this or something, and, and so mm-hmm. you're the first person who's <laughs> taking up the podcasting uh, challenge. So, why do you why did you do it, and why do you think no one has done this themed show on Long Island before you? Well, the first thing that that struck me was that. I had been listening to podcasts for a while, whether it was Jay Moore or, you know, some of these other things, uh, some other podcasts that are out there. And I started trying to find library podcasts that, were, that weren't going to put somebody to sleep. And there are, there are, there's more than a few library podcasts out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some sound like they were recorded out of a tin can. And, you know, I get it. They didn't have a lot of money to invest in equipment. There's something to be said for listenability. You're not going to buy a brand new pair of sneakers because they have a real, they, they're orange and they're blue and they're really cool, but it, there's sandpaper on the inside. Other podcasts just weren't talking about anything that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Do I really want to hear an hour long podcast about bibliographic records? I don't think anybody does. And then there were other podcasts that... Well, there are cataloging geeks out there. So there, it's, it's oh, not and like you said, there's an audience for everybody. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But what I found is that for the type of radio that I've always liked and the type of podcast that I've always liked, something organic, something that's going to make you laugh, maybe not so much laugh all the time, but something that's taking a serious subject and taking a lighter view of it mm-hmm. and always being a fan of something like Car Talk where they were taking something that could be a serious situation and making light of it, but not making fun of it. You know, laughing at yourself, being self-deprecating. Right. Having that that back and forth and having that idea that you're listening to two guys just hanging out. And if we're talking about something that you may be interested in, guess what? That's the plus. That's the bonus. Right. I said, you know, if I could create some type of podcast that would be interesting for the listener and not be hard to listen to, you know, then I've reached my goal. Mm-hmm. And that was something I really wanted to do. And it really hasn't been done. I mean, and I'm probably probably going to put my foot in my mouth. I haven't done a ton of research on this, but it really hasn't been done for this genre on Long Island. No, I, I can tell you for sure. I, I wrote a book chapter back in 2007 or so um, when it was still Library 2.0, when that was a thing. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and it, it was still early days. And I think if I went back to that chapter and looked at, the podcasts I referred to, how many are still still going, and and there weren't really any that were on Long Island other on Long Island other than the one that I was doing. So, and and again, you know, libraries try new things, and it doesn't always work, and you know, it's not right for their their situation. So it's you can see it's interesting that you're doing, it, and we're both actually doing it now almost independently. So you're right. you're doing it as a librarian, but you're doing it sort of outside of your 
normal workflow. Right. It's yeah. not part of my job description. I don't yeah. do it as part of my job. I do it because I like to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you do something that you like, you're not working. Right. And, you know, I can honestly say I don't really work. I, I enjoy myself at work. But And like I said, this isn't part of something that, I, that I'm paid to do. Mm -hmm. This is something that is completely self-funded. Right. And, you know, it's always fun. It, this, I've never had an experience where it wasn't fun. Well, I, th I think that's a good sign that you're on the right track or, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're following your bliss, which uh, Joseph Campbell would say. <laughs> he, he found a and it's fun to see how many people in other countries listen. Yeah, yeah. You but were saying, I, I'm looking at my stats, and the second highest outside of the U.S. for some reason is Brazil, but your, what, your second country was? Uh, I think the U.K. Okay. After the U.K., then it kind of tails off a little bit, but uh, we have Russia, we have uh, Canada, um, Denmark is there. Mm -hmm. So we had Australia at one point, and you say to yourself, wow, it, I didn't no, it's, think it's a it global would, audience. I mean, I didn't think it would resonate yeah. outside of Suffolk County, New York. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and then if you break it down by state, it's interesting to see that New York obviously is number one, but number two is California. Okay. I mean, that could just be population. Could be the could size be. of the state, or, or you know, the, the I don't know the nature of the library profession, or, or who's more actively seeking this type of, you know. Then it goes to New formal. Jersey, and then. You know, it kind of tapers after that. There's Connecticut, uh, Delaware, uh, Florida, Texas, uh, Washington, Alaska, which I found interesting. Mm -hmm. So even if it's, they've only visited one podcast in one episode, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, at least they checked it out. So that's kind of, it's, a, it's just a neat, if nothing else, a neat sociological experiment. Yeah, definitely. So that's really, it's fun to do, and I enjoy doing it, so... Keep up the good work. I'm trying. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to ask Chris our top 10 questions, or as we like to call it, the 032 list, which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we have to give thank yous again to Melanie Cardone for the idea for the name. So when we come back, we will be asking Chris our questions. Welcome back. Uh, we're back with Chris Kratz, who is going to be our next participant in the 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey number again for top 10 lists. Um, for, um, excuse me, for uh, top, 10, top 10 lists of librarian-related questions. So these questions were inspired by the uh, website Library Hub, or I'm sorry, Literary Hub, sorry, Literary Hub, uh, which is a website with very interesting library-related stories and interviews. You can see their work by visiting www.lithub.com. They're also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, check them out because they do some really um, great job. They, they do a really great job. I always flub this. This is the part <laughs> I always flub. Check them out because they do a great job educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Li Literary Hub. See, I almost messed that up again. That's right. Okay, so you, you ready can, for the you list? Can, you can fix that in post. Yeah. <laughs> That's if we edit it. Okay. Yes. So what did you want to be when you were a child? 
Um, actually, you know what I forgot. Uh, there, there's an well. This is not apocryphal, but there's a family legend that in my nursery school we had to answer that question, and I remember going up to the microphone and saying I wanted to be a priest. <laughs> 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 we had a you know a lot of Catholic schooling. That's funny. Yeah. So, what was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? It would have been my mother. She she instilled a lot of the love of books and reading. Um, and I grew up in Bayside, so it was a small branch of the public Queensboro public uh, Queens Public Library. And it was, I just remembered it as an o- and as an o- oasis. Um, very quiet, very cold. I always remember the air conditioning <laughs> as this hermetically sealed place. But it, it was a great. I remember just going down the sections and reading all the Encyclopedia Browns and you know. Oh, sure. Finding a series and just exhausting the shelves. So that was always a, a nice place to be. So when did you decide to work in a library? We kind of covered this before. Yeah, so it was just watching my wife go through the program and then deciding that, you know, that was for me. Although we probably shouldn't be both in the same profession at this point, but <laughs> that's another question. <laughs> and you already answered the next part of it, which was, you know, if it wasn't your first career, we talked about how you worked for the, the grandfather of Google Photos. <laughs> Google Image <laughs> yeah, search. right, right. Yeah. Um, so who's your favorite fictional librarian? I, I thought about this. This is a little counterintuitive, but um, you know the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. And in the, in the sort of horrible dream sequence after, after uh, he dies and he comes back to life, and having never lived, his, his wife is the librarian in, I think, Potterville or Pottertown, and it's like this seedy, honky-tonk town, and, and she's like this prim librarian. But I like that because I can see it as the sequel or, or this sort of mystery series where you have this prim and proper Mary Bailey in this, you know, low-down, seedy town as the librarian trying to bring civilization and culture, and maybe she solves crimes and stuff. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, I like her as the librarian in That's that, a good in that one. movie. Yeah. Okay, so what would you be doing if you're not working in a library? I would like, I mentioned before, we've been interviewing some, some filmmakers, some documentary filmmakers, so that's so maybe my next bug is I'd like to be a, some kind of documentary Documentarian, like or a Ken filmmaker. Burns kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what is your favorite section of the library? At Dowling, we had a section. It, it was the CMC section, the curriculum materials section, but that's not the relevant part. It was on the second floor, overlooking the Connecticut River. I know exactly what so you're talking it about. Would, it would yeah. be nice just to walk down there and, and sit and, and look out at the river. And that's it, a view that really hasn't changed much over the years. So what the Vanderbilt saw looking out was what I was looking at. So isn't it nice. great to think that those eyes saw the same thing that you're seeing? Yep, yep. That really is cool. Okay, so if you had an infinite, if you had an infinite, and infinite, if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? Now, I, obviously, your library doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. To you, any library. Hypothetically, yeah. And I, I asked one of my sons for help with this. So we came up with a, um, a a vintage costume department arranged by Dewey Decimal. So you could go to the, I don't even know the Dewey that well, but you know, you could go to the literature section and find costumes for Dickens or, you know, military that's, costumes. That's an interesting spin. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's some, I guess, cosplayers might come in and pick some stuff out. Or if you're reading a book and you wanted to get into the time period, <laughs> put on the costume and you could read it. Okay, so this is kind of a sad question mm-hmm. because it's not there anymore. But what did you love about your library? It, it was the people, the people that we worked with every day. And, you know, like any library, we were short of staff and pressed for time. and uh, But we always dealt with it and helped each other. So it was just, you know, a great bunch of people. That always seems to be the case, too. Mm. 
Um, so what is the weirdest thing that has happened in your library? Not necessarily the grossest or the worst thing, but the weirdest thing. I, w- I was going to flip this question. I was going to spin the wheel, and, and if I could change it to poignant. Can I say poignant? Sure. Okay. We, we were talking about the EDD students, the doctoral students, and the last couple of years we had this great cohort of um, students from Pakistan that came through, mm-hmm. and this was two or three years, did a lot of work with them. And there was one woman, and these are all you know teachers in their own country, so they were older um, adult students. And we we had we had a, we started doing coffee houses every year. Mm-hmm. So we'd have it was almost like an open mic, but we would have singers and songwriters, uh, poetry reading and things like that. And so one of the older uh, female students read an essay towards the end of one of the uh, coffee houses, and it was about how she left the, the night she left for America. And then these this program they really left and they weren't supposed to go back for the whole two years. She talked about the two you know she had small children. I can't remember if she if she didn't wake them up, or I remember there was something in it where like they were sleeping and she was kind of leaving and, and didn't want to wake them up. Um, so that, that was a very touching, you know, open moment. Um, and what kills me is we were filming the whole thing and, and the video camera ran out just before she got to the last like paragraph. Uh, so, uh, but wow. it, that was something that I remember because it was you know it was a human moment in the library, um, crossing a lot of boundaries or a lot of you know different groups of people. Wow, that, that, that's a good one. Okay, so who is your favorite regular patron? Who was your favorite regular patron? Or yeah, we were talking about like the flow of an academic library. So our patron base resets every four years in a sense because right. they graduate and they move on. But I noticed a couple of years ago there was one woman who was coming in every day, and, and she'd always stop by my door. It was near the, one of the main areas, so we wind up talking a lot. And it, it turned out she was uh, an alum who had uh, been laid off. And she was coming into Dowling using our resources, which, you know, that's why we're there. So we, she was doing things online, and, you know, she would talk about what she's looking for and things like that. And, you know, I, I was always looking forward to seeing her. And then I always thought to myself, well, I'll be even happier when I don't see her because that means she's got a job and, right. you know, she's moved on. So I, she eventually, you know, did find a job, so that, that's great for her. But, you know, that meant that she was not coming in anymore. So it was sort of a moment in time where... We were there to help her, and it was nice to see her uh, get back on her feet, too. Wow. Okay, so the last question, and this kind of, it's kind of more geared towards public libraries, mm-hmm. but what are people without library cards missing out on? The full might and backing of civilization Ooh, at their fingertips. That's a that? good one. <laughs> No, but you know, even even in the college library, that was the key to all the databases I was managing. If they wanted to get into them, they needed that. They needed that the barcode. barcode yeah. yeah. So, um, and it's amazing. You know, we we would always run into someone coming in saying, you know, I'm a senior, but I've I've never had a library card. So, <laughs> how did you make it? it that people far? fall through the cracks, I guess. But it, it is you know, a a key civic power if you want. I, one of the things I saw somewhere from a. Um, Public, a uh, school media librarian somewhere said, like, the library is your bat cave. So it's somewhere <laughs> that, you know, all this power that you have behind you to, to help you learn or do something or start a business, it's just uh, amazing what you can do with it once you have it. It is. It's a, one of our previous podcasts uh, said, open your world, or so I forget what the, the patron, what the, the guest said, but another person said that we were wizards. Oh, that's nice. Which is... Not untrue mm-hmm. without without the spells, <laughs> so it's right. you know it, it is interesting to see what other people always say. 
you know, to these questions. That's yeah. why we always... I like them. You know, it's a great segment for us because we like to see what everyone's different views are and things. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we usually like say, uh, we like to say that uh, we tortured our guests with the, the questions, but you seem to have put a, a nice academic spin on it all. I get, Well, you know, and I did have some time to prepare them, so I don't know if I should say <laughs> that, but I did. That's okay. I did put some thought in it. But, you know, it's been great, and it, again, it hasn't been torture. It's great to talk to somebody finally about podcasting that <laughs> who's not my wife and doesn't necessarily want to, you know, doesn't want to listen to it anymore. anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yes. our wives could probably do a podcast about how that's they're that's sick it. of listening to us talk about this. Stuff. And it's almost uh Seinfeldian, you know, it's like Seinfeld, that episode where they come up, you know, what did you do today? I went to the laundry. That's a show, you know, yeah, you can exactly, make a show yeah. out of it. You can make a podcast out of anything. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Well, thanks again for, for uh, indulging and, and coming and sitting and having this little geek fest because it's always fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah. We could sit and talk like this for, geez, I know, right? forever and ever. Well, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it because I'm usually the one editing it, so I listen to it too many times. Now it's, it, this will be fresh. So it's great. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. And, and you guys are doing a great job, you and Bob. So oh, thank keep you. Keep up the good thank work. Thank you. And your, your podcast is outstanding. I love listening to it. I always learn stuff. I mean, I, we go to Cutting Orb Arboretum all the time okay. to learn about that kind of stuff. And from being at Dowling and knowing, you know, the the Oker's house over on Montauk mm-hmm. Highway, now knowing more about that than right. I ever knew before. Great. You know, it was just a name before. Now I understand, yeah. you know. And the the one fellow talking about uh, those, oh, well, you know, where Bourne Boulevard is now, which wasn't there then. And Right, oh, yeah, how much it's changed. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so cool to listen to. Yeah, great. It's great. Thanks again for coming. I appreciate it. Sure. So, really, that's all the time we have for this time. This, um, excuse me. That's all the time we have for this edition. If you have any questions or comments about the show, uh, you can go to the Contact Us section of our website at thelibrarypros.com, where we'll ha- also have notes and links from all of our episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And so you don't miss a thing, don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris Bob, if he wasn't saving the cyber world, and are not... Those of the Station Public Library, M.S. Clark Memorial Library, the former Dowling Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.